You don't want the one that just passed. No. Passed. Yeah, I want the one that did really well. It's the latest in a string of police incidents that, thanks to technology, are caught on tape. These shows where the detective is rah, 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 and scare you into confession, baloney. A harsh word stirs up wrath. Yeah. A soft word diffuses. And now, the safety zone. Good morning, Mike. We're here for another episode of the safety zone. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. We're going to talk about an interesting topic that I know has a lot of branches, if you will. So we might lead off into another episode. But fascinating thing, and, and with current events, and there, there's such a, a focus, of course, on the police, law enforcement, and lots of different opinions. And of course, we all agree that what we saw with Mr. Floyd was horrible. And no question about that. But the, kind of the question is, what do we do next? And there's definitely a different branch that we can go off of. But you brought up in uh, conversations the issue of recruitment and just how that spreads out through so many different capacities, including law enforcement. And so we're going to talk today, and I, I think our audience is going to be really, really gives them something to think about the importance of whether it's a church, whether it's a, a corporation, a school, or you know, law enforcement, who we recruit and why recruitment is so important. Yeah, absolutely. My whole adult career has been spent both in law enforcement or security and recruitment. So all of this kind of ties together for me, but you kind of see an ebb and flow in terms of recruitment. So before COVID hit, we're talking about some of the lowest unemployment rates we've ever seen in this country. And so organizations were just really struggling with finding help. We've got clients that are in the staffing industry and it's like when you have two or 3% unemployment, where do you find people to place? And so what happens sometimes in that environment is we start to lower the bar a little mm. bit because we don't have nearly as large a pool to select from. And I see a lot of mirrors to that with law enforcement. Now we're several weeks removed from the immediate emotional reaction to the murder in, in Minneapolis. And we can step back and really look at it. It's something I've been pushing on from the day I became a police officer back in 1991. I noticed very quickly when I was going through the process to get hired in Nashville that there were, I want to say around 2,000 applications for 50 positions. And that was very normal back then that larger police agencies would have a incredibly large number of individuals that were wanting to be police. Now, I'll be honest with you, probably 40% of them, you could almost scratch off before you even move through a hiring process. They just absolutely were not qualified. But I noticed going through the process because we did it in alphabetical order. So all five or six steps, I was starting to get to know other people that were making it further and further through the process. And I'd actually looked at a couple around me and went, ah, they're competitors. I've got to beat them if I'm going to get selected out of this number. There were one or two I looked at and said, there's no way they'll make it through. Just in conversations, hour here and hour there, each time I went to Nashville for testing, I thought there's no possible way. I can already see that there's issues. And I'm not talking about racial issues. I'm just talking about temperament issues. Mm -hmm. And then I show up for the first day of the academy and we're hustling around and I look and see two or three of these individuals that I had absolutely tagged as there was no way they were going to get hired. 
Well, I later learned that one of them, his dad was a retired major on the police department. So within the recruiting process, there, he may not have been overly qualified, but they placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that he had had family that had been mm. in law enforcement, big within policing, big mm-hmm. within fire. L- look at the generation after generation that goes into law enforcement and fire and public safety and um, military. Military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it, they tend to give you some extra marks based on maybe how a family member has done within that fire police environment. This same officer, I can distinctly remember, I I could tell you the exact location in Nashville. I was sitting in a parking lot talking to him. It was kind of a slow evening. A guy runs up and he says, there's a guy, and I'm not going to name the restaurant, but it was a fast food restaurant. He's in there. He's getting ready to rob it. I saw the gun and I was like, great. This officer who I'd already tagged as being somebody I didn't think would make it through, his reaction scared me to death. He's jumping up. He's getting all worked up. I'm on the radio. I'm just calmly saying, hey, this is what we got. Send some more officers. No light sirens. I don't want any indication as I'm walking up to this building. And as I approached the building to try to surveil a little bit, see if I could see inside, this officer was behind me. He was scaring me to death. I thought he's going to shoot me in the back of the head because he's nervous wreck. So I finally turned to him out of self-preservation and I said, why don't you go around to the other side of the building? See if you can see through the the drive-through window. The idea was I was nervous about him and I should have been directing my attention toward the man with the gun inside. Everything played out fine, but it's an illustration that even in a recruiting environment, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be so structured because we want to treat everybody the same. We're so afraid somebody answers a question and we want to dig on that a little bit deeper to uncover something that we just kind of do check boxes. And I can tell you right now, law enforcement has done that forever. I've been through a number of application processes before I got hired in Nashville. And when you went in for an interview, it's the same questions. You got a team of administrators from that police department. It's somewhat intimidating. That's their idea. They're setting up there or they've got you in a chair in the middle of the room and they're just peppering questions at you. Mm -hmm. And as they're peppering those questions, it's the same question. Maybe I say something that should cause you to go, hmm, back up, Mike. Let's go down that road a little bit. You just said this. I want to know a little bit more about what you mean by that. Those type of things don't really happen. It's the same set of questions. Everybody answers them. And it's just kind of herding people through. From the outside, it looks like law enforcement. And they do. They spend an enormous amount of money on recruiting. But I can't really say that it is really high quality recruiting. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because if you think about how just anybody hires in a lot of companies, you know, yeah. You don't look at personality, you don't look at their emotional structure. And yet, for, for obviously for the law enforcement, but for, for people that have a certain authority, I, I'm thinking even in schools and teachers and people that work with kids, churches, youth pastors in general, or, or even the pastors, there's a lot of elements beyond the resume, the heritage. And so recruitment is a key player in how it's done, correct, in all of these different types of jobs, careers, especially where there's authority involved. 
Absolutely. And you, and you have to think outside the box a little bit. What I see, and I see this across many organizations, is they think that a background check is a criminal records check. So I could be a church, I could be a police department, it doesn't really matter. I'm doing a criminal records check. That is one piece of a background check. I can tell you right now, let's, let's look at it from a church or a school perspective. What's the fear I have as a church ministry bringing in volunteers or a public school or a private school? Who's the one person I absolutely do not ever want to get through my hiring or volunteer process? That's a sex offender. Well, the reality is in the United States, 80% of sex offenders do not have a criminal history. So if my only recruitment tool I'm using to keep them out of the organization is a criminal background check, then I've got the opportunity to fail 80% of the time. I have to be using other tools. Another tool we developed years ago, a tool called RefLink, which is an automated software-based reference checking platform. Two reasons it's very successful. One, it's very fast. And two, it can be done anonymously. Asleep. So now Melinda's not on the phone and I'm not talking and Melinda's taking notes and I'm being identified. I can actually utilize this automated tool to gather information. I can even as a, a client say when a reference completes feedback, I want them to have the ability to send that along to somebody else that they think may want to give feedback on this candidate. Now I'm getting information from somebody that the candidate didn't even provide to me. The other area that I would say we have to focus on, and we've been looking at this for a long time for schools, but it may serve a purpose in law enforcement. It's a company we were introduced to years ago, and they basically have created testing. And what it measures, it doesn't measure whether somebody could sexually offend. That's an impossibility. You cannot measure that. Anybody says they can, I've never seen a dash of research anywhere where you could say this test means you're a sex offender. What this test can and has been very well validated and successful at is predicting when somebody's going to have boundary issues, particularly under stress. And so think about how relevant that is in a school environment. I'm 24 and I've got an attractive 17-year-old junior or senior in high school and they're starting to flirt with me. If I've got boundary issues, then all of a sudden the next thing you know, I'm in a relationship. Or think of law enforcement. Mm. Think in terms of that officer that had his knee on mm -hmm. Mr. Floyd's neck. I would love to know how he would have scored in a test like this. And it's not that one incident. He had 12 or had 13 multiple. use mm -hmm. of force. He had been involved in three shootings. So he and had he was a, a trainer. And he was a trainer on Which top of that. Yeah, yeah, perfect person to bring right. in young, open-minded recruits and teach them what they need to know. So this particular tool, why it never really caught in the K-12 space is it's very manually driven, meaning mm. there it has to be administered, which means the cost is pretty high. And so I would argue, mm, maybe you can't use it in some of our schools that have 50,000 volunteers on 50,000 volunteers because they just don't have the funding. Mm. But I would argue that maybe you should come up with the money because I think the money 
to support a tool like this to keep somebody away from a child. If you look at the number of cases, we focus on active shooter with schools, but I'm going to tell you what, the solicitation, the sexual exploitation, all of those cases quadruple in comparison to active shooter events. One or two schools in a state over a period of time here in Indiana, I'll give you an example, have had two active shooter events over, I think, the last five years, but there's been some 100 and I can't remember the exact number incidents. And this is only we know with licensed employees, because that's what the state will monitor when they take somebody's license away. Well, 50% of employees in a public school are not licensed. So is that number actually 200 or 300? Mm -hmm. Because we don't have any data that's kept as a state. So the numbers are extraordinarily high. But when you're looking at a, a career in law enforcement, you are giving them enormous amounts of power to make an arrest. All you have to really be able to articulate is probable cause. And somebody asked me one time, what is probable cause? Well, there's legal definitions, but I'm going to tell you the Mike McCarty definition. Probable cause really means it probably happened. Well, that's not a very high threshold. Well, that's why an arrest is probable cause. Conviction is beyond a reasonable doubt. So arrest probably statistically is less than half of them even in a conviction because the threshold is so low to make the arrest, but the threshold is so high to convict them. And so I'm giving you a lot of power. If I'm giving you the power, the weapons, the guns, the tools, the authority to tell people what to do, and I'm also giving you the authority to figure out if something probably happened and you can physically arrest somebody for that, we better be making sure we're bringing the right people in. Exactly. Because think about that. There's a lot of people drawn to power. It's a given. And when you think about power abused, it's frightening. And, and to see that you need to have more parameters on those types of jobs that have that kind of authority. And obviously law enforcement is a huge topic right now and what we do about it. But I think too, in similar fashion, not exactly the same, but I think faith leaders, teachers, counselors, especially counselors in schools, they all have an authority. It's a trust issue with them, probably more so because they're working with kids are working with people in general, counseling them. So there's a huge, there's an authority issue, but there's also kind of an elevated trust issue, right? With the person and with the student, they're going to trust that person because of the role that they have. It's fair to say there are certain professions that the standard has got to be enormously high. Would you ever search for the lowest cost brain surgeon in the United exactly. States or somebody that's had a history of making mistakes and people die right. on the operating yeah. table? You don't want the seat. You don't want the one that just passed. No. passed. I want the one that did really well. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want the guy that was on the back row <laughs> cheating, right? Yeah. Uh, that was me in biology because I didn't understand. You don't want me doing surgery. We don't want you for a doctor. No. Yeah. And I have said for 25 plus years, and I'm telling you, I've trained police all over the world, not just the United States. I love good police. 
do not get me wrong. There is nothing better than good police. That's my dad. That's my wife is retired. My brother, my grandfather. I come from a whole history of good police. Matter of fact, I was with a cousin, my wife, my brother, my dad at a family get together this weekend for a graduation ceremony. What do you think we're talking about? It's the yeah. anger. And some of the other officers that were there were talking about what's going to happen is we're pushing good officers that are going to say, I can't take this anymore. The people we want and we right, want to right. emulate and yes. set as a model are going to be the ones that leave. Let's leave in the door. Right? And then we're going to backfill them with the people we don't want there. That's a risk we're running with these knee-jerk reactions. But we got to set the standard really high. I've said this to probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of police there is no person I like more than a great police officer. But let me end this sentence by saying there is nobody I'm after more than a bad police officer because you're tarnishing me. You're tarnishing my dad. You're tarnishing the career of many people in my family. So, yeah, I'm out. I'm not out to get you. But I'm telling you right now, if you're a criminal hiding behind a badge, I don't feel guilty investigating you. I found when we started the domestic violence unit in Nashville, once a month, we were investigating a police officer. And I'm not talking about somebody said, he said, she said, I'm talking about felony level violence. And one of the men I went through the academy with, and I came in on a Sunday and he's sitting in our office. Well, I knew then something was up and I was the first one in. So I was assigned the case. This man was locking his eight-month pregnant wife in closets. He was sodomizing oh. her. He was beating her in her stomach. So we're not talking about he got frustrated and he blew up and he pushed her. That's illegal also. We're talking about felony, serious crimes. That's the kind of crimes we were investigating. He tried to kill her the criminal justice system drugged their feet back in the 90s because they did not move forward. Matter of fact, the exact comment I got during this investigation from the district attorney's office was, we want to give him a pension. We think he has post-traumatic stress because he served in the Gulf War. This would have been the first Gulf War. I was a young officer, but I've never been very tempered in my mouth. And I remember saying, if you give this man a pension and you force me to work 25 years to get a pension, I'm out of here because mm -hmm. that is not the message I want to send. I said, this man needs to go to prison. And mm -hmm. so I, it was bucking up against a wall. There was a belief we were out to get police. I wasn't out to get any police, but I'm going to tell you what, if you were harming people, yeah. I'm going to put you in jail because They're that's where you the belong. Law. They're not above it. And they're the worst kind of criminal because they're hiding they behind they the, the law. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's a pervasive issue. And the yes. first thing we have to do is say, we're setting the standard up here. If I want 50 people in this recruit class, but I can only get 35 excellent recruits in this class, then I take 35. I don't backfill 15 more to have bodies. Yeah, that's going to stink. Yeah, you're going to have some overtime. But guess what? You're reducing your problems. We have an organization, not law enforcement. They work with the disabled. It's a large organization. And I counseled them a couple years ago because they said it takes 90 days to train somebody when they bring them in. They said, we are hiring somebody today to take 
Mike McCarty's position because we know Mike McCarty's going to leave. We have such high turnover. So they'll be double paying for positions in a 90-day window over and over again because of their extraordinarily high turnover. And I said, from a business perspective, you're one of the best clients I have because you're pushing lots of background checks through us. I said, from a moral position, I have to counsel you and say, why don't you slow down, raise the bar on who you're hiring, pay a lot of overtime over the next three to six months while you get this in place. And then you'll see the number of people leaving start to decline. But they were just so caught up in just filling positions, filling positions in the door, 90-day investment, out the door. That's usually a red flag, I think, for most people. Even if you're somebody who's applying, when you see a company or an organization that has a high turnover, yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, why? What is the leadership like? Why aren't people staying? They don't like the environment. It does raise, to me, a lot of red flags when you have high turnovers. You don't want to be the path of least resistance. And we say this to church ministries or volunteer organizations all the time. If you're doing the lowest level of vetting to prevent that sex offender from coming into your organization, you are the path of least resistance. You do not want to be there. They are smart enough to figure that out. I would say the same thing in law enforcement. We do not want to be the departments that's the path of least resistance. And I know next episode, we're going to talk a bit about this huge movement related to taking law enforcement out of the schools. And Mm -hmm. it's a very complex discussion, Mm -hmm. but a lot of larger schools have moved to creating their own police departments. Well, depending on the pay, a A lot of times it may be a struggle to recruit the right kind of person into that law enforcement position. So recruiting is huge, but departments have to figure out who should I be recruiting? Who wants to be a police officer today? Look at everything that's going on. Here's what I learned in the early 90s. We were starting to see this movement of more women coming into law enforcement. I was very unique in that this unit that we helped start became a national program. My whole chain of command were women a sergeant, a lieutenant, and my captain. It was the best experience of my life. And I'll tell you that because this was such a new program that it's just like starting a business. It evolves and you change. You think you're going to do it this way. Too many of my male leaders were promoted just because they weren't effective on the street. So let's move them up. But then position them, right? And they would be threatened by dialogue. I can remember walking into my captain's office. Well, first of all, if I walked into a male captain's office and I bypassed my sergeant lieutenant, woo, I would have just committed career suicide because you got to follow the chain of command. But I can remember walking into my captain and sitting down on a table and saying, And I called her by her name because I didn't have to call her by her title. She wasn't into titles. It wasn't like, you got to call me Captain Davis. No, she was Shirley. Now, I called her captain in front of other officers because that was an act of respect. Mm -hmm. But in closed doors, that was Shirley and I'm Mike. And we made changes all the time to how we were doing things. This is what I noticed about law enforcement is many of the women I work with, I worked with one very closely in patrol and she came over to the detectives unit with me. We could be on a call and she had the most incredible, unique ability to diffuse a situation Mm. with her voice. 
she wasn't very big. And if we had to scuffle, I'm not very big. We're probably both getting beat up, but she knew how to not take things personal. When somebody lashed out, she didn't aggravate the situation. All but one incident that I was involved in that involved really getting dangerous in a fight or weapons drawn or all of those but one were all as the result of a male officer on the scene that said something or Mm -hmm. did something and it caused it to explode. Yep, to escalate. My wife, I've said this before, she weighs 120 pounds soaking wet. And she spent 20 years in a suburb of Chicago as a police officer. She didn't do that with brute strength. She did that with intelligence and communication skills. So how do we recruit? In the 90s, they were thinking, why would we bring women into law enforcement? They're too small. They're too dainty. They can't. This is not a job that requires brute strength. I was just going to say, I understand to a certain degree, but but even that kind of articulates over to the force element that people are talking about. I'm not saying this, they're meeting any sort of brutality, but just kind of that underlying to be an officer, you got to have force. You have to be able to have that power, the physical power as well. I had to learn, and maybe I didn't have to learn this. Maybe it's the way I was raised, my education. I think I've always had pretty good communication skills. I can really talk to people, relate to people, And I found that that was the best weapon I had on my utility belt. If I have to go to the point of using a weapon, that could happen just because it happens. There are bad people in this world, and sometimes no amount of talking is going to cause them to comply with what you're asking. But I learned very quickly, and it's really, if I look back, it's modeling after what I've seen my dad, the way he treats people, the way he talks to people, the way our door would open up and people would come in at two o'clock in the morning and he and my mom would be helping them. His approach to policing, I don't know how many kids I went to high school with said, your dad stopped me today. I said, you get a ticket? No. I said, well, I don't think my dad ever writes tickets. He might've told you to slow down, quit doing this. His approach probably bled into me a lot. And so I learned how as a detective, very quickly. These shows where the detective is scare you into confession, baloney. I'm going to tell you what, you create and form a relationship with this person who may have committed a heinous crime. If I can make you feel comfortable, then you're more likely to tell me why you did what you did. I mean, you got to learn how to talk to people. And I think too often, we see in in some of these positions like law enforcement, we go from zero to hands-on very fast. And we've got to learn some skills and how we talk. Sometimes it's even how we talk that escalates that person. A harsh word stirs up wrath. A soft word diffuses. And even in my just being pulled over experiences in life, what a difference it made And not, by the way, it didn't necessarily always result in me not getting a ticket, but what a difference it made when I had an officer, you know, you roll down your window and you have an officer come up to you and, and he's may even have a smile, kind, I mean, firm, but, but kind. And you, you feel at ease. And I've had those where literally at the end of the thing, if I got a ticket, I'm smiling. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I'm not arguing with him. But then I've had others that come up to the door and I mean, stern, 
harsh. Here you are in a traffic incident or being pulled over for a traffic ticket or whatever it may be. And you feel like you've just done a major crime and you're not even sure what it is yet. Just what they give off, the the words, the even the disposition, their countenance. And you think about that. And that is a huge part of any job that has an authority. Yeah. It's the small things sometimes. Sometimes we focus on the really large things. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, coming to work early, 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm in the lane to go straight. We're at a red light. To the left of me is a turn left lane. The car next to me is not paying a lick of attention, but I know there's a police car behind him and they're sitting there and the light arrows turn green for them to turn and they're sitting, they're sitting, they're sitting. What's a natural reaction? What we all do? Eventually, we just kind of tap the horn, give you a little indication, move on. Well, the officer behind them hits the siren. And I was like, that made me jump, okay? And I was like, that's just a small example of, was he really saying, let me show you who I am and what authority I have, because all I need to do is tap the horn. It just, for me, and maybe I'm hypersensitive right now, but it was just one of those small things. It's a little over the top. Little over the top. We don't need a yeah. siren. They would have heard your horn. It's a nice morning. Window was down. Just a little beat to say, hey, come on. I need to get through the light too. But it's those little things. And so how this fits into recruitment is foundationally, we have to recruit the right people into every organization. But in some of these organizations, school, church, volunteer, law enforcement, we can make no exceptions or lower the bar. We have to have high standards. And I think that's the first place we have to start is creating extraordinarily high standards. I have it for my company. And I, I set high standards for myself. So my leaders know I have high expectations for them because I have extraordinarily high expectations of myself. And so not everybody can survive in an environment. I'm not a tyrant, man. I I give you full authority to own and run, but I expect people that run and not set idle and can't make decisions. And so we only bring in the best of the best. And I'll tell you what, the hardest thing I've learned over owning a company over the last 16 or 18 years is when somebody's not working and you've canceled and you've mentored and you've tried to correct, the time between making a move and saying, I don't like doing this, but this isn't working for either one of us and it's over, needs to happen more quickly. No different in law enforcement. There are a lot of protections there. And, and for somebody to have 12 use of force claims over a 19-year career, can you have one? Absolutely. It's no different than being in a school. And I tell coaches all the time, I have no earthly idea why a man would coach uh, girls in high school. You are setting yourself up for one person to say one thing because as a helicopter parent, their kid's not getting to play. And all they have to say is, you did this, you did that, you said this, you said that, your career's over. So I know there can be false claims. But I'm going to tell you what, when you have 12, those aren't 12 false claims. Where there's smoke, there is fire. Exactly. And yet that's what we've seen. Unfortunately, you see that, and this can go on to, of course, many other episodes, but we've seen that in churches. We've probably seen that in every sector of society, in schools and people that 
that there's been so many red flags or there's been incidences and they're either completely overlooked or they don't know how to handle it. And so more people end up getting hurt. It's very common in the school setting as we kind of wrap this up. For years, you had a problem employee, you saw them doing something they shouldn't be doing. The easiest approach was simply to set them down, have them resign. Part of the resignation is we'll not give a reference, we'll not tell anybody. So basically, we were passing along our problems. Even if it made it into a media, a newspaper article, as long as there was no criminal history and I moved far enough away... (laughs) You didn't know about it. So I know some states have enacted legislation that require them to disclose this information. They can't pass them along. So recruiting huge, but also understanding you're going to make some mistakes. We all do. If you're a business owner, no matter how great you do, you're occasionally going to get somebody that doesn't fit. Don't let them linger if they don't fit. You got to take some action. So Mike, just for those that are listening, especially if you're a church, a school, a company that really needs some help with recruitment or with what are we doing wrong? What do we need to do that we're not doing? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah. Easiest way, jump on our website, safehiringsolutions.com. There's emails, there's contact us forms. We host a lot of education. We can talk through in much more detail what a good screening recruiting process looks like for a volunteer organization, for a company, and all the tools that are available. And especially these days, most of this can be done virtually. We have created the opportunity to be able to do everything virtually as opposed to somebody having to come in, shuffle paper in front of you. So a lot of what- It doesn't matter where you are. It does not matter. We can recruit, screen, onboard them, or help you do that without ever having them step into your office the first time until things get opened back up. Right. Well, thank you, Mike. As always, a, a lot to think about and also a lot to have hope on that there are valid solutions. And and I think that's what people really, when the bottom line is, we need good solutions to be able to protect people, but for law enforcement, for churches, for schools, for organizations to thrive and be able to do what they're called to do and have that trust built in. So thank you. Look thank forward you. to another podcast. Have a good day. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com